Hello everybody, welcome to the Metal Hammer podcast. This is episode 174. I am Mel from Metal Hammer and before we proceed with this week's show, uh, I should remind you that the latest issue of Metal Hammer magazine is out right this very minute. It is a blockbuster celebration of 20 years of toxicity by System of a Down. You can get it in shops across the UK or from tinyurl.com slash gethammer if you want it delivered directly to your door. Uh, we also have a Powerwolf bundle out right now featuring an exclusive Powerwolf cover, signed goodies. I think there's a patch in there as well, loads of cool stuff. So if you're a big Powerwolf fan, you're going to be all over that. A big shout out as always to our excellent sponsors over at Killstar Clothing, the very, very best range of clothing, accessories and homeware items for you. If you want to kick yourself out, kick your home out, kick your whole life out with all things metal, gothic and alternative Killstar are the place to go to. So go to www.killstar.com to check out their awesome range of stuff. It's really, really good stuff indeed. Uh, joining us today on a podcast that uh, we didn't really think we would be recording. This was not our planned podcast for obvious reasons. Uh, is the one and only Eleanor Goodman, Deputy Editor of Metal Hammer. How are you doing today, Elle? Yeah, I think the same as everybody. Just um, sad and a bit shocked um, about the news that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're also joined by Mr. Stephen Hill of Metal Hammer and many other things. How are you doing, Steve? Um, yeah, I'm all right, considering like we both said the circumstances and throwing this together at the last minute is not really what you ever want to do. I guess it's kind of a inevitability in as life goes on. But I mean, I didn't really see this coming and it's not, it's not going to be, it's not going to be a nice thing to get in on really is it i guess no it's going to be it's a difficult one we you know this is uh i I don't know 16 hours or something after the news first broke and we are of course talking about the fact that joey jordison formerly of slipknot uh has passed away at the age of 46 years old uh we found this news out at about 10 p.m last night i think it was uk time when his family posted a statement confirming the news uh, they stated that we are heartbroken to share the news that Joey Jordison, prolific drummer, musician and artist, passed away peacefully in his sleep on July 26, 2021. He was 46. Joey's death has left us with empty hearts and feelings of indescribable sorrow. To those that knew Joey, understood his quick wit, his gentle personality, giant heart and his love of all things family and music. The family of Joey have asked that friends, fans and media understandably respect our need for privacy and peace at this incredibly difficult time. Uh, so this news broke late last night. And um, I mean, you said it, Al, the only word I could think of to describe the kind of initial reaction was just shocked. We were all just completely shocked. We didn't know uh, that there was anything going on there. We, we still do not know the cause of death, of course, that hasn't been confirmed. Um, uh, but we're all just kind of in shock and tr- trying to like piece our thoughts together over the legacy of one of the single most influential and inspirational and iconic metal artists of the 21st century and beyond of all time to be honest of all time there's no exaggeration to say that at all um before we kind of get fully stuck into this out why why do you think it was that jerry was such an iconic member of slipknot in the in the first place what made him just stand out so much well i think slipknot are one of those bands that have basically always been an extreme metal band but with hooks and that's in a big part down to him i think when you look at his drumming style and the influences that he brought he grew up on a lot of black and death metal and that's what he really brought into the band underpinning it all were these 
beats he'd put together. He was a chief songwriter in Slipknot, along with, of course, Paul Gray, who he lost. And he was just a powerhouse. He was just an absolute powerhouse behind the kit. And, you know, in terms of Slipknot's original nine, they all kind of had their own different personalities. And Joey, behind the kit, has obviously gone through various stages of masks and always been super theatrical, especially in 2008 with The Crown of Thorns. But off the stage, when Slipknot were eventually unmasked and he came out and did his other projects, he was kind of this quiet, gentle music fan who would just kind of sit down and talk and just loved what he was doing. And I think people responded to both sides of that, both to the musician who was just incredible and just brought all this flair and technique into the mainstream essentially and this person who was behind it who just loved what he was doing loved being in bands um you know you can see when he went on to do all of his other projects you know the quality of people he was working with and the quality of the output was just really strong as well yeah absolutely um i think you're right it's that kind of that combination that that i think metal fans in particular really gravitate to of just being a complete and obvious superstar behind the kit. As you say, his mask and his kind of look underwent a lot of evolutions in Slipknot, but it was also one of the ones that didn't, the kind of key idea behind it didn't change too drastically. And I think that helped really solidify him as a major icon of that band. Um, but off stage, he was just so humble, so friendly, so nice, and just so incredibly and endlessly passionate about music. He was a real true died in the wall lifelong metalheads and he loved it he just loved doing that doing that for a, a job and he loved being a part of that scene um we'll dig into kind of some of his story and then uh just like pick out favorite memories and and particular things we remember about joey and and uh what it was that just made him such a unique personality in metal um he was born in dade moines iowa in 1975 real name nathan jonas jordison uh obviously grew up in dade moines as a young rock fan uh he often regaled uh journalists with tales of how he drummed along to the Rolling Stones on a miniature drum kit when he was like five years old so I mean he was kind of entering that world of musicianship from an incredibly young age um, and as he became a bit older he obviously got into heavy metal as El said major devotee of death and black metal as well as many other genres um, and unsurprisingly he ended up playing in a lot of local bands until he eventually formed a band called The Pale Ones with Paul Gray and Sean Crayon we all know what happened next. They would eventually become Slipknot. A lot more members joined. A lot of stuff happened. Uh, and in, in October 1996, Slipknot unveiled their first proper release, which was Mate, Feed, Kill, Repeat. Um, I mean, as we know, this this was the first Slipknot release, but it was kind of more of like a prototype Slipknot release. There was no Corey on this album, no Sid, uh, a couple of members that would soon be gone from the band before they really started to kick into gear. Um but in 1999 is when things really got going. Uh, they released their self-titled debut album on Roadrunner and they instantly became, I was going to say, one of probably the biggest bands that Roadrunner ever put out there. Um, and it all kicked off from there. Uh, Steve, you saw them at the Astoria on the tour for this album, the legendary London Astoria gig. We talked about it in our Slipknot Hall of Fame podcast a few months ago. Um, and I noticed in your tribute that you posted to Jerry last night, uh, it was that night in particular and seeing Joey on that stage that first kind of sprang to mind for you when you began to collect your thoughts on Joey. What was it about that night in particular and 
Joey on that night that just embedded itself in your mind? Um, I'm not sure I can remember the anticipation to see something, even before, not, not a song or just a band in general, but just to kind of witness something in the flesh that the kind of the rabid nature of the people that were at that show in that crowd, the anticipation to go, what does this thing that we have been sort of drip fed, the occasional bit of handheld camera footage, you know, the occasional picture here and there in Kerrang, you know, the stories that were coming over from the Ozfest and from their tour with Cold Chamber and Machine Head and stuff. What does that actually look like in the flesh? And I don't think I've ever seen another gig where people were that, you know, it was the first show they played in the UK, Slipknot. And, you know, maybe it was the same at Ramstein's first show or, you know, similarly, Alice Cooper's first show. Obviously, I wasn't there at them, but I was there for Slipknot. And I just remember their intro tape was so long. The intro tape seemed to go on for like 10 minutes, do you know what I mean, before you saw anything. And people were like moshing to like the the whole thing I think is sick. That People were actually like go, pushing each other around, moshing to that before anyone even walked on stage. And then suddenly the first member of Slipknot you see is Joey Jordison stood on his drum kit, on his seat, just crucifix pose, head tilted, pointing at people. And honestly, it is like the clearest thing I can... It, it, is, it is like HD colour in my mind. One of the most memorable things I have ever seen. And then obviously one by one, they kind of came on. I think I've spoken about that story show and how it was so... It was so visceral and vile and extreme and chaotic that it almost wasn't very good <laughs> you know what I mean it almost kind of fell apart but but Joey being the first member of Slipknot that you saw and you know like we said he's got he's dominion he's small this kind of tiny little guy we're like oh my god he's he's tiny and how does how oh no wonder he's got those two other guys playing you know because how, how can a guy that small make such a big noise can get so much power out of it and as soon as he sat down and started playing you know in a band of nine people that crazy back then, Slipknot in 1999, for your drummer to stand out amongst all the chaos, for your drummer to be like, that's that's one of the guys, the clown guy, the dreadlock singer, the drummer, they're the three that people were really looking at, you know? And he's just he was just a phenomenon. Even though he was the only member that couldn't move, he, he was just like, look at that guy. Look at what he's doing. Look at how he whirls his hair. I mean, he just, it's again, it's a really fucking simplistic thing to say. He just looked cool. He just looked so cool. You're like, that guy. I want to be mates with that guy. I want to know what it is that, that has, that fuels that person. Because I, you want to be friends with him, but then you're like, you'd be too scared to actually approach him. You know, even though he's this tiny little dude. It's just, an, just like an amazing thing to witness. I think that um, it's funny that you say the thing about being cool because obviously his, you know, his talent kind of did enough of that by itself. But when you just look at the kind of look of all those band members, his mask was so understated on that first album title, literally just a white kind of, I don't know, it's like a theatrical mask, like a drama mask, unpainted. 
And it just makes this kind of, I mean, Slipknot were a total enigma, but they were also violent and loud and crazy and weird. And the, the kind of dynamic between this like calm, shapeless face sat behind the kit while everything around him is going fucking bananas and he's battering the shit out of this kit in front of him. It just made for a really unique look, sound, everything. Um, and I mean, immediately, as soon as that first album came out, Slipknot run like anything else going on in that scene at the time. But there were at least a lot of other elements that you could kind of compare to a lot of what was going on. Like they had those bouncy riffs, which is where a lot of their comparison to new metal came from. They have the kind of scratches as well. And Corey's rap like, did these kind of half barked raps, which again is a big reason of why they got compared to a lot of that crowd. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the kind of like the big look, you know, the, the, the gimmicky look, there was a lot of that going on at the time as well. One of the things that just, completely marked them apart from anything else at all was Joey Jordison's drumming immediately. I mean, if you want a brief idea of just how insane he was, go onto YouTube and look up his intro to Eyeless Live. It's a 40 second clip that's shot from behind his riser in a stadium somewhere in America, I think. I think 99 or maybe very early 2000s. And he just fucking demolishes that kit. It's so fast and so urgent in the build up to that song. But it's so tight as well. There's never a second where it looks like it's going to spin out of control or... He doesn't know what he's doing. It's just so well put together. Um, it's fucking unbelievable. And of course, as I said, he was a ma- he was a really key songwriter on that first album as well, and all the other albums that he later appeared on. Um, and uh, by the time they kind of ended up touring it, it was clear that we we had a a band and especially a drummer on our hands who was just unlike anything else emerging in the scene at that time. I mean, oh, we were new metal kids, and when you think about the kind of bands that Slipknot got paired up with, even like your system of a downs and all the weird ones, like when you actually listen to what was going on with the drum work on most of those albums, I mean, I can't think of anything in that pool of bands that compared to what Joey was doing. No, not at all. I mean, like we talked about, he was listening to all these black and death metal bands. That was what he was raised on. He would walk around the halls of his high school listening to these bands. And um, that was just what was running through his veins. So... With Slipknot, that's what we got from him. We just got all that amazing talent and the pace of some of those songs was just incredible. The, just the patterns that he was doing were incredible. Um, there's nothing like that when, like you say, when you look at other new metal bands. They yeah, just weren't was... doing anything on the same scale whatsoever. Yeah, not even remotely. Um, obviously, in, in August... Sorry, Steve, were you going to say something? Well, I was going to say, I think like the, the, the thing is, is like, it's really, really difficult to have... Um, like to play such sort of fast extreme music and to have a personality and to keep a personality you know there's not many drummers in metal where you can go oh well that's that's Vinnie Paul like Vinnie Paul is one and love him or hate him that's Lars Ulrich that's Dave Lombardo you can hear it you can hear it in their playing that's the Rev from Avenged Sevenfold they are I mean you can literally count them on one hand and Joey Jordison would be the other one as soon as you heard anything you could hear an isolated drum track of Slipknot and you would know that that was Joey Jordison and for a drummer to be able to do that I think that's like that's so difficult you don't get to pick your own tone like a guitarist does or do you know what I mean you don't get to you you know you I think it's easier to have a style as a guitarist which is kind of unique and personal to you but when you're just supposed to be filling the beat which is what drummers are meant to be doing 
you know, keeping everything trundling along. To put that much of your personality into that, where it's clear that that's just Jerry Jordanson, that's what Jerry Jordanson sounds like. I mean, you know, we'll probably get to the Master of Puppets, Joey doing that with Metallica and stuff. It sounds like, you know, it, it, it's, it's Joey Jordanson drumming for Metallica. It sounds completely different. And that is so rare. That is so rare in any type of music. Really fucking rare. You can count drummers on probably on, on both hands, like who, who actually have that. Like ever, I think. Yeah, it's it's a really really rare thing, and his kind of aura and and uh, you know his his legend almost amongst Slipknot fans only grew from there. Um, obviously, following on from the the debut album in August two thousand one, Slipknot released Iowa. We just had a, a major uh, cover on it a couple of months back, um, uh, and we again we covered this album in a lot more depth on the Slipknot Hall of Fame podcast as well. So we didn't want to don't want to go over too much ground again, but. Again, not only did Joey write a ton that was on this album, but if you just listen to the drum work on this record, a record that got to number one in the UK, it's some fucking unbelievable stuff going on. I mean, the drums on Disaster Piece, listen to that and remind yourself that this is on essentially a mainstream album, an album that was in the consciousness of everybody that paid any attention to the charts at the time. Um, we it's it's a common phrase, but it's totally too. We all talk about how Slipknot brought blast beats into the mainstream. Well, Slipknot didn't. Joe Jordison did. Joe Jordison brought blast beats into the mainstream. No one had ever done that before. Not like that. Um, and if you look at the rest of the UK charts when Slipknot was number one, I mean, it would be a bit misleading to suggest that they're a total anomaly because, I mean, in that top 40, even in that week when they were number one, we had Hybrid Theory, we had Toxicity, we had Anthology by a and Farm, we had Break the Cycle by Stained, which had also gone to number one. But even compared to, you know, the eccentricities of Toxicity, for instance, the songs on Ira are just a totally different fucking breed altogether. And when you look at the other bands that were vying for number one that week, you had The Strokes and you had Five. In 2021, if a band that sounded like The Strokes got a number one album, we'd all be fapping ourselves silly saying it was a victory for rock music. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, rock's back. A band that sounds like The Strokes have got number one. Yeah. Like fucking, I don't know, the 1975 Royal Blood or something. Like Slipknot got to number one and they did so with some of the fastest, heaviest, nastiest music the charts had ever seen. And Jerry wrote a ton of that and he produced some just unbelievably heavy drum work to go with it. Drum work that could fit on the heaviest fucking extreme metal album you could throw out there. Um, that's pretty cool, isn't it, Steve? Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's... It, like you say, it's the only time that has ever happened. It's the, I mean, we have to say, really, it's the only time that's ever going to happen. I mean, when you think... It's mad enough that they got above the strokes, the amount of hype that the strokes had. To get above like five of a fucking boy band, I mean, that's like absolute at that point, that's absolute like you'd think shoo-in for like number one for the way that the charts were at that point. And again, like, yeah, in compared to comparing comparing it to anthology by Alien Ant Farm and, you know, hybrid theory and, and yeah, even toxicity to to you know, toxicity has got such massive choruses and hooks and melodies all over it. Um and Slipknot did the opposite of what everybody thought they were going to do. They literally, I mean, it's them and Pantera, isn't it? Surely the only two bands that have ever gone, nah, fuck this, we're going heavier. They surely are the only two bands that have even attempted to do that and won. Um, yeah, on that level, absolutely. Yeah. And um, and even, you know, I mean, 
Are they blast beats? Maybe like there's some super fast stuff on the Great Southern Train Kill, I guess, but still not quite blast beat level. Yeah, there's some kind of like trigger drum bits where it's yeah. like, but it's not. Yeah, it's, it's not the same thing. It's, it's not, not like a same. relentless fucking pummeling like some no. of the tracks on Iowa give you. And it's on the first fucking track as well. It's the opening part of the first track on this number one record, and it's yeah, it's fucking deicide. It's. Uh, morbid angel do you know what i mean it's like it's it's extreme you know it's it's extreme metal people might kind of bulk at that a little bit because you know yeah you're right like the guitars might not be the bounce and the kind of crunch and the 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 vocals and stuff might not be fully full-blown extreme metal but again isolate the drums and put it up against you know something pete sandoval was doing around the same time it's the same pace it's the same intensity it's the same thing and that won't ever happen again i mean like i i i just don't ever believe that that's i just don't think that's possible like i I don't think it's possible to make another leap in kinds of heaviness in the same way again and it wouldn't be it wouldn't feel so shocking and just bizarre i mean if you think about the lead the lead single off of i was left behind like even if they had something like I don't know, like My Plague, I guess, is the lead single. Like you could kind of, there's like a na 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 kind of chorus. But you just imagine someone like that. On Radio 1, they have to play a track off each uh, album when they do the album countdown or whatever it is. I can't remember which one does it now, but Heart or someone like. They'll do the album countdown and then they'll play a track off each album, won't they? And you just imagine them playing like Left Behind after playing songs by The Strokes and Five. The Heretic. And imagine... Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, yeah. They don't know. They play people who call shit. Definitely, <laughs> like it just doesn't. It doesn't compute. Um, and Joey was a. Uh, we can't emphasize this enough. He wasn't just a, a, a massive part of that because of his drum work, but he wrote a load of these songs as well. He was such a key component to Slipknot's fundamental sound. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe it was on the Iowa tour that we saw Joey introduce his spinning drum kit. Right, that's when they got they elevated the show, and that's when the the Tommy Lee-esque shenanigans came in. Yeah, you um, can see it on the Disaster Pieces DVD. That yeah. was out in 2002. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I didn't go to that tour, but my mates did. I stupidly turned down a ticket to it, and I can't remember why now, but I couldn't I couldn't go for some reason. Um, and my mates went to it, and one of the things they came back talking about was that drum, that spinning drum kit that Joey had. And Elle, I'll throw to you on this again, because, I mean, me and you grew up as metalheads in a, in a post-2000 scene. Tommy Lee's drum coaster had inspired, like, a whole generation of metal fans, obviously. But for our generation, like, that wasn't really on our radar. We had never seen anything like this before. Um, certainly in terms of some of the... I mean, you go back and you look at that Disaster Piece DVD. Joey's playing fucking blast beats and just hitting those drums so hard and so fast upside down and like steve said he's a small guy he's not some big built dude like it's it's it looks like he's defying physics i mean it was just mad wasn't it yeah i had no idea about the tommy lee thing because like you said i was of a generation where that just wasn't on my radar so it was completely new to me slipknot doing this i never seen anything like it before and the fact that he was strapped in like you said playing these blast beats just like basically upside down and usually when a band does a drum solo, you kind of get a few enthusiasts just kind of like going, oh yeah, this is kind of cool. And most people head off to the bar, but yeah, fuck this was drum like, for the most part. <laughs> this was such an event. This was something that everybody was talking about and people just wanted to see. And you're just looking forward to seeing it so much because when, even though you knew what was going to happen, when you, when it happened, you didn't really know what was going to happen. Like it felt dangerous. It felt like 
something you were just watching unfold. It just felt like something completely new and exciting and so special. And the fact that they had, it wasn't just a drum cut either. It had like lights on it and at a certain time it would go dark and then you could see the red logo and it was just like, this is fucking cool. It just looks like the coolest thing ever. It feels dangerous. It feels scary. It feels, yeah, like you just don't know what's going to happen next. It just really added to the show. It was like one of the real high points of the show. It did, yeah. And it added into that thing of Joey just becoming such a beloved character in Slipknot. I mean, you nailed it, Steve. Like these kind of personalities as drummers in metal... I know there's probably loads of people that are like screaming out various names from great metal bands. Metal's got many of the greatest drummers in the world, but in terms of real standout characters, icons, people that could go on the front of a cover like Joey has many times over the years, there are few and far between. The only other one from that entire generation of bands I can even think of is The Rev. And Joey had a similar standing with metal fans. People fucking loved him. And you looked forward to those drum solos because they became a staple part of the Slipknot show, um, which was awesome. I think as well, the other thing, like regarding the kind of Tommy Lee drum kit thing, I think what was brilliant about Slipknot is where new metal as a genre was about going, put the past aside, don't, not grunge, no, we're not glam metal, like we're not thrash, we're taking hip hop and we're taking dance music and we're taking all these other things which aren't really strictly traditionally metal minded and we're creating a completely brand new thing. I think why Slipknot one of the real reasons why Slipknot escaped that is because they kind of dismantled all of the things, you know, like the the look of Slayer. Like they took a bit of the kind of the the, the kind of madness of Gua or you know the really kind of theatrical bands, but they made it disgust. They made it vile and disgusting. They took Motley Crue's spinning drum kit and they didn't make it fun. They made it fucking frightening. Like you know, they did all these things where. It wasn't like, oh no, we're we're kind of rejecting metal. They loved, you know, you could tell that like Joey fucking loved metal, and they'd be talking about no one else. No one else from those bands were talking about death metal bands. No one else was talking about Deicide. No one else was taking In Flames out on tour in the early two thousands. Like you didn't see Disturbed or Papa Roach taking Morbid Angel out on tour with them, did you? But Slipknot were the band that did that, and it was like you know you'd look at someone like Joe Jordan and go, "Well, he loves metal. He's not embarrassed by it. He's not trying to escape it. He's actually taking the things that everyone thought was so fucking cool about metal in the eighties and kind of trampling it into." some kind of sordid black-hearted mess and then reconstructing it for a more cynical vile generation and that's sort of the appeal of Slipknot in general and I think like I don't know I think maybe that's something that gets overlooked a bit about that that Slipknot were a fucking metal band you know like and they loved they loved being a metal band they never fucking hid away from it and Joey brought more metal to it than you know apart from maybe like Mick Thompson, practically they're the most, they're the metal guys in Slipknot, right? Mick, Joey and Paul Gray. They're the fucking, the actual metal, metal guys in that band. And that's so important to like why people love them so much. A hundred percent. And then both those, and all those people could have comfortably outknowledged any nerd on the internet who would try to discredit um, Slipknot's metal credentials. Cause yeah, you're, you're right. They were a fucking, metal band and they remain a metal band and joey's legacy is a massive massive part of that um in 2002 we see joey jordison take an almighty left turn i mean 
I remember, again, I was, uh, let me work this out, like 15, 16 or something, I think, when, when this happened. And I remember just being like, what the fuck is going on? The drummer from Slipknot is suddenly unmasked. He's picked up a guitar. He's teamed up with some dude called Wednesday 13, whose old band was called Frankenstein Drag Queens from Planet 13. And he's formed a band called Murder Dolls. What is happening? Um, and they ended up producing this kind of glammed up horror punk album in Beyond the Valley of the Murder Dolls that came out in August 2002. Um, and we, we just get to see a totally different side to Joey altogether. I mean, we've mentioned how he's obviously a big Tommy Lee fan, so he likes kind of glam rock and glam metal. There's definitely a bit of that in Murder Dolls. Um, but we also get to see him indulge his horror sensibilities. We get to see him play a guitar. We get to suddenly going from this like enigmatic, mysterious, masked character to snarling and, and smiling and shouting and being uh, in a band that will have, have all these hilarious over-the-top kind of horror lyrics that are just so much fun. Um, I fucking love this Murder Dolls album. Every time I put it on, I remember what a class album it is. What did you think of Murder Dolls, L? Yeah, just really, really, really super fun. Just like a super fun thing. And it's kind of similar to what you were saying about us being a generation that didn't really know about like Motley Crue's drum coaster. Like I didn't really know about the Misfits. I didn't really know like that horror punk was a thing. And I was like, oh, look at all these cool songs. And they're just, they've got a completely different aesthetic and this really fun sound. And when you go watch them, it's just all about having fun. I saw them at the first download festival and it was just like a crowd of misfits, early 2000s misfits, you know, just, we remember what that was like, like stupid bracelets and dyed hair and kind of just all kinds of different like new metal and alternative clothing. Purple dreadlocks, flared jeans, <laughs> chain wallets. Yeah, it was just like, it was just like a, you know, a group of misfits coming together and just having a really good time with them. And it did feel completely different to what Slipknot was doing. It was like, you know, unless somebody told you that Jerry Jordison was in it, and you, you could just probably walk over and watch that band and just not have a clue that that was who he was. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I saw Murder Dolls, I think, 2002 at the um, at the garage. So I actually saw Murder Dolls live before I ever saw Slipknot live, which is weird. But um, I remember the people that I went with were definitely more on the kind of gothy side of things like like we were with a couple of my girl mates from school and they had like i think one of them might have even had black and red dreads i don't know if that was um inspired by wednesday 13 directly it was just kind of the style at the time for a lot of people wasn't it but one of them also had purple hair and it was kind of a slightly more cooler dare i say kind of like sexier kind of sillier kind of crowd to what slim is slim is like we're the fucking outcasts we are the ugly kids in hoodies and we're proud of it um, and Murder Dolls had a slightly different tilt to them. Uh, and yeah, it was just so fun. I mean, I, I loved it straight away because I loved all the kind of how well it all captured the vibe of like classic 60s, 70s and 80s horror. Um, I think it really did help further establish Joey as a real personality of his own in the metal scene. He was on the cover of Metal Hammer in this time. His first solo cover was as a member of Murder Dolls. Um, and uh, yeah, he just kind of came out of his shell in a whole new way that we probably hadn't really anticipated. What did you make of the... Murder Dolls era, Steve. Um, I mean, firstly, talking about all the way that people are dressed, like back then, it was a, it was a good time because you kind of would see someone dressed like that and you'd think you knew what me- what music they're into. Whereas now they just own a craft beer company. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Couple on the craft beer man. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, and they like Little Mix, um, which is fine. I like Little Mix as well, they're good. Um, well, they buy their metal t-shirts from Boohoo. 
Mate, this is a notorious... Who would do such a thing? <laughs> this is Definitely a... not me. I definitely haven't got a Slipknot t-shirt from Boohoo. Uh, this is not a metal t-shirt, mate. This is a, this is the only place you can get decent Notorious B.I.G. merch. So that's what I'm rocking at the moment. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I to be honest, I never really got into the Murder Dolls. I have to say it was probably... I, I, I don't remember listening to the records when, I first, when it first came out. Um the sort of things that were getting bandied about as influences for it was stuff that I was probably not really into at the moment, at that moment. I mean, I was, you know, I was very, very much into sort of the Dillinger Escape Plan and Converge and stuff like that around that time. And that's sort of all that I really wanted to listen to. So I would have been listening to like Thursday. Um, and I don't really know if 22 year old me in my fucking you know, Boy Sets Fire hoodie would have been up for that much fun. I mean, you know, on reflection, listening to the record, I remember when I was on the radio and we used to have Team Rock Radio, um, uh, that was supposed to have a lifetime ago now, but anyway, we used to have that, didn't we? And um, I was on that and, and people would ask for the Murder Dolls all the time. And I was like, oh, are they, are they any good? And I was like, I don't really, I've never really listened to it. And every time I played the Murder Dolls, people would go, oh my God, amazing, the Murder Dolls. And I have to say, I found myself really, really loving how they sounded on the radio. You know, playing that alongside stuff like, like, say, The Misfits and well, not even really The Misfits, but like Van Halen and just the kind of fun time, sleazy rock and roll stuff. And I was like, oh, shit, yeah, I can see how this is much more New York Dolls and Stooges than, you know, I was thinking, oh, is it going to be, you know, Motley Crue and Poison and Def Leppard inspired? But it was actually much more Stooges-y, New York Dolls kind of sleazy. And yeah, I, I, like on reflection now, I probably like the Murder Dolls net more now than I ever have at any point in my entire life. Fair, fair. Yeah, I fucking love them. They're a great band. Also, they were on Top of the Pups. They did their cover of White Wedding on Top of the Pups. Were they? I don't remember they were, that. You were, yeah, they were on Top of the Pups. Wow. How crazy is that? That's that what is was happening. so much fun. I love that. I mean, again, just metal was just, you know, all over the place back then. You, you couldn't move for it. It was great. Um, but he does eventually get back into Slipknot mode uh, a bit after this. And uh, in May 2004, we do, of course, get Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses, a cracking album, pushed Slipknot sonically, added many new strings to their bows as songwriters. And Joey was a massive part of that again, of course. Um, and it was during the touring cycle for Volume 3 that one of Joey's most memorable memorable excuse me moments occurred um at download 2004 Slintnall played third down on the bill on the sunday night um, metallica are due to headline that night and of course famously uh, lars ulrich goes awol in a, in a situation that the the band described as a medical incident at the time uh so they call on some friends to help them out and dave lombardo from slayer steps in for a couple of songs at the start of metallica's set but then joey jordison steps in for the remainder of the set the man has just played a Slipknot set within the last couple of hours, a fucking Slipknot set. And he's now going to get on stage and sit in for the most famous metal drummer of all time to play with the biggest metal band of all time. I mean, that's like a no pressure situation, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine just being drafted in to do this? And obviously he would have known all these songs like back to back because it's Jerry Jordison. But what a crazy thing to come out and do. And like, what a unique thing for everyone to watch. It was absolutely mad. I mean, I wasn't there. I'll say it was mad. I wasn't there. But it was all everyone was talking about after the festival. It was what the mags were talking about. It was what my friends that had gone to Download were talking about. Um, 
Did you go to? Did you actually go to this download, Steve? Before I carry on. No, my first download was 2009. Unfortunately, so I didn't go to this. I should have remembered that from uh, our literally a week, thing we did literally yeah. two weeks ago. Yeah, Washington. Okay, yep. But yeah, anyway, I've watched this back many times since because it's such a classic set, and it's just mad. It's still mad now watching this set back. I think if people, people, a lot of people know the story about Joey Jordison filling in for Lars Ulrich, but if you haven't actually gone and watched the video, there's a really good multi-angle. Um, a video that someone's posted on YouTube of this set where they've stitched together different camera angles and and dubbed it over the the live um the live soundtrack and it and it it's just it's fucking mad it's so much fun like you can tell that the band are kind of pulling it together by the strings of their teeth for the first few songs um, and it feels for a moment like it all it could almost go off the rails it's all a bit mad but then Joey comes in and he settles in for creeping death and from then, they are just off to the fucking races, man. The way Joey sneaks in all these little extra fills and bursts of blast beats to all these Metallica tracks is unbelievable. And it just makes some of these songs sound even more just mental and epic and brilliant than they already did. Um, when he does like Wherever I May Roam, it just sounds nuts because he's putting all these extra fills into a song that's like relatively mid-paced for Metallica, all things considered. But he's kind of it's kind of going like it's absolutely mad. Um have you have you watched the set back, Steve? I imagine you have since then. Oh yeah. Um I've watched it loads of times. I mean it's fucking great. And again yeah, like you say, that that um you've got Lars Ulrich, whether you think he's a good drummer or not, he has got a certain style and a certain personality that he puts into those songs. And removing that personality and putting in just anyone, I think, would make those songs sound different. But putting in someone like Joey Jordison, who, you know, all due respect to Lars, I've got no beef with Lars really, but he isn't technically as good a drummer as Joey. If we're going purely on a technical level, they both are very, very um, idiosyncratic in their own way. But I think, you know... I think even Lars himself would probably admit that Joey is a significantly more technically uh, better drummer. I don't, I, like Lars couldn't play a Slipknot set, I don't think, because I think, obviously, Joey proved that he could play a Metallica set. And hearing Joey, I mean, just turn songs that are hard, like kind of hard metallic hard rock staples into slightly... I don't want to say extreme metal songs, but just like bringing them into the 21st century. And they, but they do give you that little burst the way extreme metal does. Cause one of the things that like, like Slipknot as well and, and kind of extreme metal with really fast drumming is so good is that it just, it sparks this kind of primal little like movement in you when someone just goes, it just like absolutely roasts that fucking pedal. It, it does something to you. It moves you. And when Joey puts those fills into those Metallica songs, it does it in a way that those songs don't normally quite provoke the same reaction. It's really weird. Yeah, he almost sort of, I mean, I suppose <laughs> Slipknot and Metallica, they should maybe add up to more than this, but it's the same sort of thing, I guess, that like, like Killswitch Engage, uh, they take kind of classic metal, but they made it sound like the 21st century. Trivium, like, there's loads of bands that, that did that. But taking a Metallica song and turning it into kind of a, a slightly Slipknot-y song is like so good it's so good he's amazing it was it was it was mad and it's like i don't know you know the fact that i suppose he was only on for a couple of songs but the fact that dave lombardo is a footnote in this story is pretty unbelievable and i don't think there's there is no other drummer i even say even the rev there is no other drummer in metal full stop that could 
sit behind that kit. But because he came out in his Slipknot mask and everything, just add this really cool visual extra thing to the whole show that just made it an instantly memorable experience, whatever was going to happen. Um, but he pulled it off and provided one of the most unique and memorable Metallica sets of all time. And there's a lot of those to go around. So it's pretty, pretty immense. I was going to say one last thing on that. And with all due respect to all of the other members of Slipknot, can you imagine if Rob Trillio was in that position and they got, say, Paul Gray in? Can you imagine if, say, Kirk wasn't available and they got Jim Root in? I'm not sure those songs would have changed that much. I think they would have changed a bit, potentially. But I don't think you'd be going, fucking hell, remember when, you know, remember when Jim Root stood in for Kirk Hammett? You would probably go, it looked cool. But I'm not sure you'd go, it completely changed how the solo sounded, completely changed how the tone of the song sounded. But Joey, actually, probably the only member of that band, maybe by Corey stepping in for James Hetfield, I think would have changed it quite a lot. But um, but I think even that, I think, Corey he'd would, sing it a certain way, wouldn't yeah. he? And he wouldn't. I doubt he'd suddenly start screaming like, you know, yeah. nothing else matters. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the fucking nuts on you to get up with the biggest metal band of all time after you just played a Slipknot set and go, not only am I going to do this to a download festival headlining crowd, I'm going to turn those songs into something that I, how I imagine them in my head that fits my style. The fucking balls on someone to do that is gigantic absolutely yeah. gigantic ridiculous he um there's a headfield kind of jokes as well before joey comes out where i think they takes a little bit of while little while to get ready or technically set up i don't know what it is but um there's a bit where he kind of goes oh we're just gonna wait for the next drummer to come out oh, drummers huh? and he kind of starts bantering it a bit and i just think fucking hell joey jordison is sat back there listening to that knowing he's got to kind of come out and drum with this band it's just like like you say, the nuts on him is mad. Could you imagine if someone in 2000 said that someone in the year 2000 told you that Metallica would be headlining a festival at Donington with the drummer from Slipknot and the bassist from Suicidal Tendencies? <laughs> it's just mad. Absolutely mad few years for that band. Yeah, fucking nuts. That is nuts. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, just and yet again, added another kind of... Um, you know, stitched to Jerry's tapestry, which which just grew and grew and grew. And it grew again the following year in October 2005, when Jerry was anointed as a team captain for the Roadrunner United project, a huge, huge undertaking by Roadrunner Records that united a ton of heavyweights past and present for a massive collaboration album. And uh, Jerry drummed on it. He helped write some of the songs as well. Um, he, helps, uh, he helped produce the tracks Annihilation by the Hands of God, featuring Glenn Benton from Dayside on vocals. Um, he also uh, was on Tired and Lonely featuring uh, Mina Caputo, then Keith Caputo from Life of Agony. Uh, he was involved with No Way Out featuring Glassjaw's Daryl Palumbo uh, on Constitution Down featuring Exhorter's Kyle Thomas. And maybe m- most coolly of all, um, the final track, Enemy of the State featuring Typo Negative's Peter Steele. Um, El, do you remember when this was announced and there were just all these figureheads from across Metal's world and how fun it was? And uh, I guess it's just, it speaks volumes that Joey, a drummer, was was picked to be a team captain for this thing. It was absolutely insane. It was all anyone was talking about. We all knew it was going to happen. We all knew he was involved. And like you said, the fact that Joey was picked shows just how much people loved him. All those team captains who were picked and all the... Uh, players who came in to create with these captions were all 
like artists at the top of their game, artists with legendary reputations. And everyone was so hyped to see what was going to happen. I remember just going out and buying that CD as soon as it came out. Um, and I just, I'd seen what it was going to look like ahead of time. I'd seen it like trailed in all the magazines um, and getting my hands on it was amazing because I was, I was so excited for it. I don't think our generation had ever seen anything like that. The, the sort of ambition of that kind of collaboration with that many people, all from these incredible bands, but who all sounded so completely different as well, were bringing completely their own techniques, completely their own sounds to something that was going to be a sort of unified album. Yeah, it was like Live Aid, but cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Live Aid was cool too. I'm just I'm steady, steady. Um, but yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was just so it's so much fun, and there's a load of good stuff on this album as well. Like it could have just been a load of shit, to be honest. You can't guarantee that great artists coming together is gonna work out with great art. But you know, the track with Glenn Benson is great because you see Joey getting to flex his extreme metal muscles even more than usual. He's just blast beating the fuck out of that song behind Glenn's screams. Um, the uh, I, I really really like the um, the the song with Peter Steele as well. Gloomy, gothic, unsurprisingly lurching track, full of atmospherics. Um, I thought the one with Exorders, Carl Thomas is cool as well. It's this kind of rolling, pacey stoner metal track, burst of drum feels that only Joey would inject into a track like this, and they work so so well. Um, you got much to say about the old Roadrunner United project, Steve? Yeah, I, actually, I want to shout out Joey for making such fucking great picks because, I mean, somebody else you haven't mentioned there is Mike Baumbach from Vision of Disorder who plays guitar on the song with Daryl and who plays guitar on the song with Mina. And, you know, liking the sort of shit that I liked. I mean, to, if you said to a lot of people, like, oh, you know, put the, you know, the Roadrunner United, what's it going to be? I mean, obviously, yeah. Andreas Kisser, Mats Cavalera, Pete Steele, I think, you know, particularly at that time, is obviously a big deal. And, you know, I absolutely love Type of Negative. I've said that countless, countless times over the years. Um, but he's a big deal. You know, you would expect someone from Slipknot, someone from Trivium, someone from Kill Switch Engage. There are a lot of big hitters. You know, there are a lot of big hitters, like Rob Flynn from Machine Head. You would expect someone like Dino. But I think there was, there was some... The other team captains picked some really good people. You know, no shade to people like Howard Jones or whatever getting involved with Rob Flynn stuff. But when I saw Joey was picking not just Glenn Benton, which is obviously really fucking cool. And I don't know if you remember the live DVD they put out where Glenn Benton comes on dressed like a member of Demolition from uh, like <laughs> don't 19, remember that. 1989 WWF. Like, yeah, I, I immediately need to see that now. Yeah, he just comes walking out and he's in like full blown like battle gear and it's fucking hilarious he's got like spikes on every inch of his body coming out of his chest on his legs on his boots on his like arms and stuff big like helmet on his face like it's fucking it's fucking magic but for me it was like looking and going oh he's, he's picked mike baumbach from vision of disorder to play on a track with Mina Caputo from Life of Agony. And they, 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 at that point, bands that people weren't really thinking about or talking about that much. And, you know, Glassjaw, Daryl, like, from Glassjaw, Glassjaw only did one album with Roadrunner and they had a fucking terrible relationship with them. But they were the sort of bands that I, I loved, you know, shit like that. Like, Roadrunner, obviously, such a massive label in the 90s and so many fucking brilliant bands and a lot of people do just kind of go, oh, it's Nickelback and Slipknot and Trivium and Killswitch and Machine Head, right? And it's like, well, you know, there's Shelter and Madball and Obituary and like so many other things. I love the way you put Nickelback in that. Well, Nickelback are the biggest band that's ever been on that label, right? 
Uh, yeah. Oh, Nickelback bigger than Slipknot. They yeah. are. Yeah, they I remember. Are. I remember actually oh, being man. at a photo shoot on someone saying to me that Nickelback kept. Oh no, it was Rob Flynn. <laughs> I think Rob Flynn actually said Nickelback keep the lights on at Roadrunner. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are, aren't they? Really, I did that. I, I was being a bit of a a uh, insular uh, metalhead with that comment. Obviously, Nickelback are bigger than Slipknot, but I just I don't know. I just think it's funny because you went straight to all the metal bands and it was like, yeah, Nickelback. Trivia machine head <laughs> No, I just meant the big bands. I mean, actually, Nickel- you're right. You're right. You're totally right. They are. Yeah. Those are the the big bands, and Visionaries Disorder would not immediately come to mind. Yeah. By the way, um, ten over ten million monthly listeners for Nickelback on Spotify, seven million for Slipknot. So Nickelback quite comfortably bigger than Slipknot, I would say. I just but, did the same research, but I didn't want to embarrass myself, so I kept okay, quiet. Thanks, Dan. Back, back, back up my own. My own. I'm like, normally words. the numbers guy. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you know, seeing like seeing those people that he was pick, I was like, they're really fucking interesting picks. And I, you know, I, Life of Agony, I just love Life of Agony. Mina is always brilliant, and for him to pick her was just like awesome. I think that song was fucking great, really great. I think Joey's tracks are pretty much the standout tracks on the record, to be honest. I think that's that's a very very safe shout. Um, we'll move on to the All Hope Is Gone era now because there was some important stuff that happened during that time. I actually, before you move on to that, can I just say... Yeah, please do. I just wanted to mention in 2005 when Slipknot played Download Festival because I'm sure we'll come on to when they headlined in 2009, which was an absolutely incredible performance and that real hunger there for them to sort of smash the headline set. But I was at Download in 2005 and I don't think enough people talk about how good their set was there. They played under System of a Down and... It was pissing it down and there was this like weird light in the sky and like all this cloud and the crowd were absolutely feral and I was just in the middle of people just absolutely losing their shit and Slipknot were just playing like so heavily while all this rain came down and it was a real moment and I actually wrote... I don't. Ha- I didn't have a diary, but I actually went home and like sort of wrote a diary entry about it. And I found it a few years ago, and I went, "Oh, this is really embarrassing," and threw it in the bin. And I'm a bit sad now because I'd just written down like how amazing it was. Pre- it- you you found it pre nostalgic, <laughs> kind of cute rubbishness was was big on social media. Well, if you found it today, that'd be straight on Insta. But I'd put, I'd like written down like how it made me feel and how it like literally moved me because it was just so incredible and it was such an amazing set and an amazing communal experience. And I just remember that so much, like that feeling. And yeah, I wish I had my embarrassing entry now because I would like to be able to relive it. Um, But yeah, it was just absolutely incredible. I think if anyone was there in 2005, they would have really, really felt something coming from Slipknot, really felt that energy in in the festival that day. I think it's an important uh, period to note for the band, though, because obviously that was the era where they dropped Duality, which was their first like major crossover hit single and stuff. But that, that was a period where they were still kind of like the people's metal band. Do you know what I mean? They were kind of still the underdogs, not the underdogs on that bill, but like they, they, you know, they weren't the headliners. They were still the band getting booked to come on and fuck shit up before other bands played. Um, and now they're this kind of all-encompassing major franchise. They're a completely different beast in many ways. But that era, they were still like the band you had to see wherever they played. Totally. Um, I don't even remember remember System of a Down playing. I just remember Slipknot and I just remember how incredible it was. And how, it was electric. It was just electric. Yeah, it was awesome. And then, as you said, Al, uh, the next era is where they took even 
a bigger step up when it came to festivals. Um, All Hope Is Gone dropped in 2008. Joey's last album with the band, which is crazy to say, given it was 13 years ago. Um, there's ma- I don't want to say there's like mixed opinions on this era of Slipknot, but it definitely, musically, it definitely doesn't seem to have the same overwhelming love and nostalgia that the first three records do for a lot of people. I know there's a lot of fans that came in on this album as well, though, so I'm not discrediting them. Um, but it did undoubtedly give us not just arguably Slipknot's definitive live moment, but the definitive metal festival moment of the 21st century uh, when the band headline download in 2009. Um, there is, of course, the, the the legendary duality moment, but there's also the bit during Spit It Out um, when Corey has everyone down. I think it was at this gig where, where Corey was doing the classic um, Joey, take us home kind of thing. Um, it might not have been in that gig. It might have been afterwards, but it was around this time anyway where he started doing that. Huge, huge moment for the bands. And again, Joey was such a massive part of that era. We actually had him on the cover of Metal Hammer uh, in this era as well. Just Joey done up kind of, this is when he had the kind of crown of thorns and the long fingers and all that cool stuff. The coolest get up he ever had. And we had just him solo on the cover of Metal Hammer in this time as part of a Slipknot cover, which is crazy to think about. Like how many other bands you're literally talking about Metallica and Avenged, I reckon, where you could get with just putting the drummer on the cover of a magazine. Um, there was also another Murder Dolls album in this period, kind of forgotten about. Women and Children Last came out in 2010. Pretty, pretty good, pretty solid album. Like good fun, not as good as the first record, but I saw them on the Ozfest 2010 show at the O2 in this era, and it was really good fun. So it was cool to see that Joey was still indulging uh, that side of things. Um, obviously, we lost Paul Gray in this era as well, and we had the emotional uh, tribute to Paul at Sonosphere in June. In um, June, I think it was July. It was summer 2011 anyway, where we had the uh, very emotional tribute to Paul Gray by Slipknot at Sonosphere. Um, And just to kind of tell you, to go back to kind of the Joey and Extreme Metal thing, um, before they played that Sonosphere show, I was working at Terrorizer magazine at the time, which is an extreme metal magazine. It was an underground metal mag. Uh, And we had Joey on the cover of Terrorizer in June 2011. Very controversial move um, to some of our readers, but we decided we thought we could justify putting Slipknot on under the proviso that it was Joey that went on the cover because we wanted to talk to Joey about extreme metal. And that's what we basically did. We talked to him about his love of death and black metal, the many bands he grew up listening to. Um, and we did have a little bit of slip not in there as well, but it was mainly just kind of um, digging into the fact that Joey was a major, major fan. And you could even say like an ambassador for extreme metal because he did turn on to a lot of fans onto a side of music that they might have otherwise missed. Is that fair to say, Steve? I think so. Yeah, I, I you know, I, there's, uh, you know, there's, I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence when you look at where extreme metal can, sort of, um, the, the sort of venues that extreme metal bands can play now. You think something like Behemoth playing the Forum in in London, which holds about two and a half thousand people. I think even Gajira, you know, the sort of size of the venues and the places that they can play. You can think of the sort of I guess even the rise of deathcore and the kind of the, the, the deathcore move. I mean, that is essentially just going, let's make death metal more like new metal, right? Let's make death metal bouncier and <laughs> a bit more sort of like Limp Bizkit, you know? So I don't think it's a coincidence that people who, you know, 10, 12, 14, 15 years after Iowa, people are now much more au fait with shit like Cradle of Filth. I don't 
I don't think it's and it's, you know I, I don't think that's a coincidence that those sort of bands can play much bigger venues and that people are kind of all right with you know extreme metal bands I remember you know growing up I remember being like there were metal bands and then there were these kind of weird extreme metal bands you no one really talked about but they could kind of play like the to about 500 people in the underworld in London and sort of never the twain shall meet do you know what I mean like that was it was very 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 rare that you would get somebody like like Satyricon when they opened for Pantera. That seemed like the maddest idea. I remember that happening and just being like, this is insane. These two things don't belong together. And yet, you know, sort of years and years down the line, we see it all the time. We see extreme metal bands playing with Anthrax or Slayer or, you know, at some points even Metallica. You know, you, you, you do see that happening a lot. You see extreme metal bands at Download, Obituary, and... The art is murder and, and stuff like that. Like the whole kind of dying fetus. Dying fetus. Yeah, exactly. You see those bands popping up in much more kind of uh, you know mainstream metal territories, and it, it can't be a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. It's I got in an argument not. with uh, a couple of people once. Uh, not not like a serious one, but like I got in a friendly debate with people once at Bloodstock because I tried to make the argument that Bloodstock or festivals like Bloodstock wouldn't have had the same kind of growth that they have had if there wasn't a generation of metal fans that have come through that listen to Iowa. Um, and I genuinely believe that to be the case. You know, not every metal fan gets into a new metal band and then goes on to heavier stuff. But a lot of them did in that time. A lot of them did. Ellen and I are two examples of that sitting here right now. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a, they were a massive force for that. And Joey was arguably the kind of driving part of that. I, I agree, Mick, especially his riffs and stuff were as well, but Joe was a huge, huge part of that. Um, we're going to take it on to 2013 now, which was a crazy year for Joey and, and an interesting year for Joey as well. Um, he plays a spate of shows with Slipknot in 2013, uh, including Download that year. Um, and in October, uh, Slipknot played the Monsters of Rock Festival in Brazil. And... Um, and unexpectedly, that ends up being Joey's last ever Slipknot show. But we don't get to that at this point. Uh, because in April 2013, Joey announces his new side project, Scar the Martyr, which is a kind of supergroup featuring former members of Darkest Hour and Strapping Young Lad, amongst others. Uh, their, self, uh, their self-titled album drops October 1st, 2013. So in October, Joey plays his last Slipknot show, unbeknownst to us at the time. Uh, but he also drops this... Uh, this self-titled album from Scar the Martyr. Do you remember, I mean, I know you remember this album, Elle, but did you, did you kind of pay it much heed when it came out? No, <laughs> just to be honest, I remember it. Um, I didn't pay it much heed. It was sort of like, I think because everybody was just going, oh, it's a Jerry Side project, but it's not Slipknot. I think not everybody, but there was definitely a, a bit of a vibe about that, about kind of, yeah, I'm interested, but... I really like Slipknot and I'm not as interested in this because it just wasn't, it didn't have the same intensity that Slipknot had. It was softer around the edges. Um, it had maybe a little bit more new metal in, but then it even had some kind of like Opethy type bits in as well. Like it, it was a real kind of mixture probably of everything that he was into and that his bandmates were into. And that's what makes it really good. And I actually did come to it afterwards and it's great. It's catchy and it's killer and it's, it does go hard, it's just not the same as Slipknot. But I do think there was a difficult mental shift for people to perform 
to get from I know obviously we talked about murder dolls but that was almost so far removed from Slipknot that you either liked it or you didn't and I think Scar the Martyr because it was maybe more of like um, a middle ground thing people maybe didn't take to it immediately it's just my perception though um, but at I, the time I think as you know, well, at the time a, that's how I felt yeah I think I think there's a big difference between a white hot current metal band that is blowing up around the world and becoming the biggest thing in their scene and two of those members then taking a sidestep and doing a side project and bearing in mind it was the first time we you know with Stone Sour as well it's the first time we'd seen Corey and seen Joey without their masks I think that's very very different to being the biggest band in metal an established veteran metal band and then you go and decide to do a, a side project you know bless Lars Ulrich I'm with you Steve I'm a Lars defender I love the guy but if Lars said he was doing a side project now I would not just not be that excited by it you know I just wouldn't because it's just not it's not the same thing um but I, yeah, I felt the same way as you. How I, I, you know, we, we listened to it at the time, and I can't even really remember listening to it at the time. But I know I did because we we covered it quite extensively with Metal Hammer. But I went back and listened to it, and it, it's quite good. It is actually quite good. And I don't want to be patronising because there's some major musicians involved in this thing. But it's a side project. It's a bit of a super group. Eh, they often don't work out. Um, but there's a lot of fun stuff on here. There's like this really stomping industrial groove that runs through a lot of the tracks. There's definitely some Slipknotty, bouncier tracks. I agree, Al. There's some new metal on here, which is always fine with me. Um, but there's, it's a perfectly solid album. Uh, yeah, I think like it's time has been kinder to it or something of that nature. I think when you do go back and listen to it now, you can appreciate more where it comes from, what it sounds like. I think at the time, yeah, it was just a bit difficult for people to wrap their heads around. Mm, definitely. R- removed of the, con- the context and the pressure, I think you prob- that means that the music is there just to sort of stand up on its own. I mean, I think... I don't remember listening to it when it first came out, but I did go and review their show at the Underworld. And the day before their show at the Underworld in London, so it kind of feels like it was coming full circle a little bit because it was their first London show. And obviously I'd seen Joey's first London show with Slipknot. And the day before the London show, he was announced, it was announced that he'd left Slipknot. And I remember I was going to review it and I was getting emails from people going, you have to go down and get reaction from the crowd. I went down and met... Um, uh, our photographer and we took some shots of people and we did some little videos of people and we asked them for their kind of reaction to Joey leaving Slipknot and it was it would we put a little video up online I remember. Um and the gig itself, you know, it was really clear that Joey was the star of the show. I mean the drums were put on the the underworld in London for those of you who haven't been there, it holds about five hundred people but it's an odd little pokey difficult venue with a weird little stage and a load of, you know, it's a typical kind of um sticky floored dive really isn't it isn't it in london it's like it's it's a great venue but it is quite difficult to maneuver and the stage is a really weird shape joey brought his massive drum kit with him and they put it right at the front of the stage i mean i remember at one point i was like the bass player stood behind him you know like he's the star of the show there's no getting away from it it's people are here to watch joey jordison play drums and it's sold out you know it was so, the show was completely sold out and i remember thinking it was fine you know it was it was fine it was a fine show they kind of sounded a bit like a not as interesting, slightly dated version of what Slipknot could have done if they weren't Slipknot. You know, bit of Fear Factory, bit of that kind of industrially new metal thing. It was all right. It was a perfectly nice way to spend the evening. But yeah, you know, like obviously knowing that I was going to it a week before, I was like, oh, I'm going to see Joey Jordanson's side project. And then being there, it was like, oh, I'm actually going to see Joey Jordanson's new band. And that changes how you 
perceive the thing that you're seeing to be. It's no longer just a side project, is it? It's actually like, this is what he's doing now. And then, and that made it like, oh, mm, that's a bit disappointing. But I don't think it would have been if he was still like the dude in Slipknot, you know? Yeah, it was very weird. Um, and yeah, it happened right in the wake of one of the most surprising lineup announcements in the history of metal, probably, when Slipknot posted uh, a message in December 2013 that simply read, it is with great pain but quiet respect that for personal reasons, Joey Jordison and Slipknot are parting ways. We wish Joey all the best in whatever his future holds. Um, and then they added kind of some stuff emphasizing that they were going to record a new album and everything else. Um, we'd obviously lost Paul a few years before this in very different circumstances. And now Joey had left as well. And this is all in the space of between two Slipknot albums. So it's in the middle of Slipknot actually having to do their next album. And the next album would have to now not only not feature Paul, but not feature Joey as well. We know that Slipknot have rallied since then. They did come back with a great chapter and then they also did We Are Not Your Kind, which is a fucking brilliant album. Um, but at the time, Al, it's probably safe to say that it, it felt kind of improbable to imagine Slipknot existing without Paul and Joey at the same time. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about Slipknot being over. There are a lot of people saying, I don't want to see Slipknot or listen to Slipknot if those two aren't in it. I'm not sure that Slipknot can go on. I don't want to be a Slipknot fan. And I think the remaining members of Slipknot got hit with that quite hard. You know, we've obviously spoken to them since that for issues of Hammer and um, sort of the having to kind of ignore um, the chat from people and sort of try and move on and how they did that. And then obviously eventually they had sort of the mysterious introduction of two people uh, that you wouldn't say who they were and stuff. But yeah, when it happened, it was just a huge shock um, and it just felt like the falling apart of one of Metal's biggest bands and people who'd invested so much in them were genuinely kind of worried that Slipknot would never make any music again and were just really sad that their favourite drummer wasn't going to be a part of it anymore and I think because Slipknot fans have so much loyalty it was almost like this divided loyalty thing of like what's happened is my loyalty with Joey is it with Slipknot what's going on and it was just a huge deal wasn't it yeah it was really really bizarre very strange situation and and you kind of, you know, Steve said that it felt like we were now seeing Joey's new band, but actually that Scar the Martyr show in London um, was the last Scar the Martyr show that ever happened. And then we get a relatively quiet period for Joey. Um, he does put out a statement on his own Facebook uh, following the Slipknot news, kind of kind of saying that, it, you know, it wasn't, he gave the impression it wasn't, wasn't really something he wanted to be doing, leaving Slipknot, to say the very least. Um, but it, there was a very quiet period that followed this, that all this stuff happening. Uh, and then in May 2016, we see not one, but two new projects announced. Uh, one is Vimic, which is essentially formed from the ashes of Scar the Martyr. Um, and it definitely kind of continued that kind of industrialized, bouncy, slightly new metal vibe that Scar the Martyr had a lot of. Um, but the main project, really, the thing that really gets people talking is a brand new project called Insanum. Uh, and this is the thing that really served as Joey's last proper musical project. Uh, it was another super group, this one featuring Attila from Mayhem, Frederick from Dragon Force, amongst others. 
Um, and this is Joey really getting to fully let loose on his love for extreme metal. They're kind of a blackened death metal band, I guess you could call it. Um, and they released two full-length albums, 2016's Echoes of the Tortured and 2018's Repulsion of Humanity. Uh, Steve, what did you think of Sinsanum? I actually reviewed um, that second album for Hammer. And I think at the time, in 2016, I probably wasn't like... Um, you know, going mad on extreme metal as much, maybe. I sort of had just been dipping my toe into it and I was a bit like, oh, I don't know if this is something I'm that interested in or whatever. But I remember getting it and being like, oh, yeah, you know, new project from, you know, the, the Joey Jordison extreme metal thing. Not really having particularly massive high hopes for it because I'd actually been to see Vimich, incidentally, play the 100 Club in London. And unlike Scarlet it was not sold out. But just like Scarlet Mata and actually just like Slipknot, Joey was fucking loving it and afterwards people were coming up to him and he was like high-fiving them and hugging them and he just looked really happy to be there and I was like what a fucking dude what an absolute fucking dude but I did feel like Vimich were quite bang average to be fair and um so I was a bit like I don't know you just sort of go well maybe he's just sort of the creative well as run drive or whatever but I thought that Sinsania Man was fucking awesome like really really like shockingly shockingly great I did not see that coming at all. It was, it was really, really good, and um, it kind of incorporated all of the things that I personally like about more extreme metal. It's almost like Joey made that, or that project was made just particularly for my taste, because, you know, I the kind of biscuit tin black metal thing I sort of struggle with a bit, but it sounded fucking massive and it sounded great, and you know, it had actual songs and it was super. super supremely heavy as well um yeah i i really really like that band i think they're great i agree i think they're really really cool there's you know joey knows his shit with this stuff and he's got some top tier people involved as well because frederick i know i said he's from dragon force but he's been in like proper extreme metal bands in the past as well and so he's really got people that know what they're doing with this kind of material and i think it really works um one of the things i really noticed actually when listening back to the second insanum album today uh, repulsion of humanity it starts with the title track and it starts with this disgusting flurry of blast beats and screams and relentless razor sharp death metal riffing and i was listening to it and thinking oh this is fucking great it's fucking good and then it struck me that the intro to that sinsanum track sounds almost identical to the intro to people equal shit by slipknot which is hilarious because, again, it just shows you that not only was Slipknot literally an extreme metal band at various points with their music, but that Joey really did bring so much of that extremity to their sound because his drum work on parts of this Insanum stuff uh, is exactly what he was doing on Iowa and exactly what he was doing on the first of the album. It's just fucking great. Um, and uh, if for some reason you overlooked uh, a lot of Joey's kind of extracurricular stuff... Um, Give Scar the Martyr a go, but definitely give Sinsanum a go because there's some really, really good stuff across those two albums. Uh, and off the back of this flurry of activity, um, Joey's on the cover of Metal Hammer that summer uh, and he talks for the very first time about his split from Slipknot in some depth. And it is a very emotional interview. Dom Lawson actually went over to Dave Moyes, Iowa to do the interview. It's a great piece that we've actually republished on the Metal Hammer website today. You can read it in full now because we thought it was good to share it with people. Um, and Jerry reveals in that interview that he had been suffering from a neurological condition called transverse myotis. Um, uh, and as I say, it's a neurological condition that hits your spinal cord. It causes major mobility issues 
Uh, and Jerry says in this interview that it first started to flare up during his final years with Slipknot. And it began to affect his ability to play. It began to affect his ability to get around. Uh, so he's basically got major, major health issues going on at this point. Um, and he opens up about those for the first time. And he also goes on to insist, insist that he never had any problems with drink or drugs because that was obviously a big rumour that was going around um, involving with his uh, his split from Slipknot. Um, there are still a lot of discrepancies between his opinion on what happened with Slipknot and the band's opinion. I don't think we'll ever really know exactly what happened there. Um, but in this point in Jerry's career, when this cover feature with Hammer came out, um, he was excited to kick on with his new projects and he was in a good place. And it felt just... I think it just felt exciting to have Joey Jordison back in the metal scene, didn't it, Elle? Yeah, it was really exciting. And when we had him at the Golden Gods and we came, he came on and we presented the award, like the whole room was absolutely like on fire. Everybody was just showing how much they loved him. And there was this real sense of he has overcome so much adversity. He was talking in that feature about how much physiotherapy he had done, how much he just loved drumming and had to get back to it and just worked so hard that he could do that and for all his projects yeah there was just the level of enthusiasm was just off the charts um doing something with fred and sensanum and getting back doing stuff with vimic and he was just yeah just so excited and i guess these were his babies right these were the things that he was doing and focusing on and that he could grow and that um, I guess were almost part of his recovery because that was what he was working towards doing when he was getting back to health was getting out there, working on these projects, being able to tour and record and be Jerry Jordison. It was around this time as well, of course, that um, we had the Golden Gods Awards in June 2016. It always take place the night after Download Festival. Um, and for the Golden Gods in 2016, Jerry actually won the night's biggest awards. He wins the Golden God Award itself. And this is an award won by the likes of Lemmy, Ozzy, Tony Iommi, Dave Mustaine, colossal, colossal names. And not only that, uh, but in many ways, this was actually the biggest Golden Gods we ever did because it was at the Hammersmith Apollo, biggest venue we've held the Golden Gods at um, and a hugely historically important venue as well, of course. Uh, we had a tribute to Lemmy, courtesy of Saxon. We had the likes of Gajira and Amon Marth play. And these are bands that have you know, gone on to headline festivals and, and we're right on the brink of being certified festival headliners there. So this is a big, big show at a big, big moment. Um, and Jerry wins the Golden God Awards. And some people at the time might have raised an eyebrow at that because it had been years since Jerry had been in Slipknot at this point. He didn't maybe have the same gravitas as a Lemmy or an Aussie to a certain generation of metal fans. But to be honest, those eyebrows can just go straight the fuck back down again because when Jerry walked out, the noise that that crowd made for him, seeing him there in the flesh, most of them for the first time in many years, was absolutely deafening. And I've worked, or I did work, nearly a decade's worth of Golden Gods. El, you worked years of them. Steve, you worked years of them as well. I don't think I've ever seen anybody so genuinely delighted and emotional to receive an award like that. And when he got up on stage, there were already tears in his eyes as he started talking. And by the end of his speech, the rest of us had tears in our eyes as well, because it was a really, really big moment to see what he had been through, what he was still going through. And just to see the love for him that our scene has it meant so much to everybody there. Um, he is, And that to me is just Jerry Jordison summed up. A died in the wall metalhead. He fucking loved his music. He loved his fans. And he just loved being a part of this scene. Um, do you have any kind of particular memories on on that Golden Godzilla. I know you probably wouldn't work in behind the scenes at that point. 
Yeah, working behind the scenes, but just that I just remember the roar that went up when Jerry came out, just the cheering, and it just lasted, like it just went on and on. And I remember sort of Jerry like being on the stage and people cheering and clapping. And then he just kind of looked taken aback, really, because it wasn't just like a small round of applause. It was like a sustained, like, welcome back uh, cheer and just... Yeah, you could really feel the love in the room for him and you really felt like everybody was on his side and was so happy to see him back. And that's just really what I remember from it, just being a phenomenally emotional moment for everybody in the venue. It was incredible. Um, did we, Did you? Was that one of the years you presented, Steve, the 2016 ones? I can't recall. It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was stood um, next to... So Jamie Jaster was hosting it and I was sort of emceeing in between introducing the bands and stuff, which was like, you know, fucking, for me, Gajira and Amon Amarth and I think Hailstorm was our like, massive band. You, the type of people that we had at a venue like Hammersmith Apollo totally amazing like amazing amazing night it was really really great and joey just kind of wandered on or wandered up to the side of the stage and i was just stood there do you know what i mean like i was just stood there and i'm sort of mind my own business when the people come up you're not just going to be like grab tony iomi or something but I sort of i sort of saw him and you never get bored of seeing these people who you're like oh my god there's fucking there's Ozzy, there's like, you know, Dave Mustaine, there's like whoever, right? And Joey, and I just sort of looked at him a couple of times and he looked at me and just sort of went to shake my hand and I was like, oh, hey, I was like, Joey, hey. And he's like, hey, man. And I sort of introduced myself. I was like, are you going to enjoy this? And I could see already that he was, he was kind of welling up before he'd even been introduced. And I was like, oh, he seems like really really like genuinely moved to be given this like he was in he was he was like he was in an incredibly emotional state before he even got on that stage and as soon as he got on there and I'm you know if anyone was there you can totally you you will you won't forget his his speech sometimes people come on they get these awards and they are obviously always really gracious and like really like I'm really pleased to get this and this means a lot but with Joey, I don't know, it felt like it just did mean a lot more to him. And maybe it's because he'd been away for a while. Maybe it's because he's had health issues. Maybe it's because, like you say, Mel, he's not the most obvious pick to a lot of metal fans. But he was so humble and so deserving of that award and so kind of, you know, genuine in his kind of acceptance of that award and you could tell that he, he didn't really want to get off the stage you, I looked at him and I was like he could be here all night just talking about metal talking about the metal scene talking about how much it means to him talking about his memories talking about how much is like the fans have like got him through this stuff like you could have literally let him stay there all night and you know I think that's, that's it gets quite rare when you're a star that big it, you know, it's kind of rare that someone, I think there's some really nice, like lovely people in metal, but you know, that was, that was really, that was really, really genuine. That undoubtedly. It was, it was really moving. I actually went into the office the next day after the Golden Gods. Uh, my grandma had just died and I wanted to go in the office and kind of have some sort of normality. And Jerry had come into the office, I think to do like, um, just a bit of stuff for the magazine or the radio or a photo shoot or something. Um, and I just went up to meet him and he was just full of gratitude. Like you said, you could just see how emotional he was and the way he was talking, it was 
you know, almost like he wanted to cry because he was so overwhelmed with it. Um, and this was the day after, and he was clearly in this place where, um, yeah, it was just really lovely to talk to, and he just, um, it was just special. He just, you know, there's just so much emotion there. Yeah, there really was. Um, I I didn't really get to properly meet or hang out with Joey at the at the that Golden God specifically, but I did interview in the following year at Chicago Open Air, and um, it was for our big issue three hundred cover where we were just kind of talking about the state of metal and, and what was going on. And, and he was just so much fun to talk to. He just was like, if you, if you basically just wanted to talk to him specifically about just metal in general, he could just gab on for fucking hours. And, uh, um, he just, it always seemed like the most humble, genuine, grateful dude. Um, I mean, you kind of summed it up at the top of the show. Al. He was like an absolute rock star and an icon and so inspirational and so influential to this scene. But he was also just, a pure fucking metalhead, a dude that just loved this music and loved being a part of it. Um, and I think that's really the legacy that he will, he will always have. Um, have you got any final thoughts on Joey, Steve, before we leave it for now? Just that, you know, I think if he's such uh, an integral, important, essential part of what made the biggest metal band of their generation, the biggest metal band of their generation. Um, everything that I love about heavy music, the kind of the lack of compromise, the genuine passion, the kind of idiosyncratic personality. He had all of that and talent. Like most of all as well, you know, let's not forget all this stuff and saying what a nice guy he was and he brought that and he loved that and he did that. He was a fucking, like, a, a, a generational talent behind the kit. And he could play guitar, and he could sing, and... But when you stuck him behind that kit, it's like... As lovely as he was as a person, um, and for all that stuff that we look at, and we go, what an iconic figure, and isn't it amazing that he's diminutive, and he could do all those things, and he just looked cool, and that mask was great, and all these, these looks, all these things that he'd been through... Like the 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 sheer talent of that guy to play drums is I d I don't I am I'm, I'm struggling from for a word that that truly sums up just how good a drummer he was. He's a fucking incredible drummer. Like and you know that's why and that band means so much to people and he is such a huge part of it. Like such a huge part and it's just. You know, you kind of always hoped that maybe one day you'd see him back behind that stall because that's where he belongs, you know. It's where he belongs. And um, it's just really sad. It's just really, really sad that he won't. Agreed. Al, any final thoughts? Yeah, I just think he's an absolute icon and I'm so pleased that there are so many documents of him playing. Um, there are so many DVDs out there. There's so much stuff on YouTube because we can all, you know, kind of relive those moments. We can see how good he was. We can appreciate his talent. And I'm really pleased that there's a record of that because I just think he was an incredible player. And like you said, Steve, like there's just no words really, is there? Like, what do you say um, for someone like Joey? But I also just wonder if there's music out there we haven't heard yet because I spoke to him in 2017 about Vimic and obviously they never released Open Your Omen um, he said they recorded it in 2015 and then it never had this release. And sadly, the person that they produced it with uh, passed away in 
2018 from a motorcycle accident so I think there were probably like a lot of things going on there but when I spoke to him he also said that they had done a second album he said they hadn't recorded it but they demoed it and the structures were done um and they're done like the drums and the guitars and it's all finished but they just need to do it in the studio for real so there's potentially two Rimmick albums kind of out there um and he also said he was working on other projects that he couldn't talk about because he'd signed contracts and things so we might not have heard the last of jerry's drumming there might be more original recordings out there that will emerge and again like as i was saying just having all these kind of video clips and dvds to be able to watch um that that is amazing enough in itself but there might still be other things out there that he's done so i'm, I'm interested to know whether anything will come out really yeah, well, we'll um, I, yeah, maybe one day we will hear something of that. I wasn't really aware of that, to be honest. So that's, that's interesting. But um, in the meantime, we've certainly got a lot to, to look back on and listen to and love for Joey Jordison. I hope that this podcast is giving Joey's fans, you know, some some pause and some some good memories and kind of another opportunity to push pause on this and go and pick up all those amazing records he contributed to and blast them as loud as you can. We have a lot more coverage on Joey on the Metal Hammer website, of course. And um, somewhere down the line, we're not quite sure where we're going to do it, but there will be a major Joey Jordison tribute issue uh, at some point coming as well. For look, so look out for that down the line. Um, in the meantime, you can pick up the latest issue of Metal Hammer, of course. Uh, and we should also shout out our sponsors, Killstar. Go check out all their great stuff as well. Um, but if you're going to do anything today, play a lot of Slipknot and a lot of uh, other great things as well, because he certainly did plenty of them. Uh, we will see you all soon and we'll be back next week on the podcast. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.